Erev Tov. There is a hazy disorientation that comes with the birth of a child. I'm sure many who have raised children remember that first night in the hospital. But for us, unlike with our son Lev, there was an added element to that first fitful sleep. By chance, we had left the television on, and waking up around 3 a.m. half awake, Ayelet and I realized that the third precinct fire station in Minneapolis was burning to the ground. We both sat up, turning to one another. I don't remember who said it, but I distinctly remember that one of us uttered the words, it feels like the world is on fire right now. Our observation that night was not new. In fact, the ability to see the world ablaze is at the heart of our ancestor Abraham's origin story. Though there are many legends about why God chose Abraham, one particular story finds Abraham walking down the street and noticing a palace aflame. Where others passed that house without saying a word, Abraham's eyes were opened. Who is the master of this house? He asks. God hears the question and God realizes that Abraham sees the fire. And moreover, he cares about the owner of the home. He cares enough to stop. Quickly, God chooses Abraham to carry forth his nation. Late May was a turning point for America. Many of us already cared about racism before Amy Cooper weaponized the police after being asked to leash her dog. Many of us cared before George Floyd was murdered in a modern-day display of the banality of evil. Yet for me, and I imagine for you, my eyes were opened to the magnitude of the problem. Suddenly, the smoldering palace was set afire. We began to see that to be black in this country is to live in a perpetually burning house. And in its light, that fire has shed light on the wicked underbelly of this nation. Slavery is our country's original sin, and today we are still feeling its effect in subtle and overt manifestations of racism in our country. Racism is the reason for our broken policing system. It is inherent in school policies that keep kids segregated and voting laws that discourage minorities from entering the polls. Historically, redlining was banned 50 years ago, but it created a culture where there are white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods, where some families struggle to get out of poverty while others are born into wealth, where education is bifurcated. There's a myth in the Jewish community that we understand. I was raised with stories of Jews marching alongside Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. Every one of these stories happened. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was a friend of Martin Luther King, and he famously explained that when he marched in Selma, quote, it was as if my feet were praying. Yoyakim Prince, the rabbi of B'nai Abraham down the street from us, famously spoke before King's I Have a Dream speech saying that in our world, quote, the most urgent, the most disgraceful, the most shameful, and most tragic problem is silence. In 1964, 17 rabbis went down to St. Augusta 
to protest segregation and they were arrested. Their letter from jail written at 3 a.m. on the back of a mimeographed report of assaults from the KKK is one of the most important documents in American history. And we can't forget that our own Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, located in Washington, D.C., was the place where major parts of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s were penned. But the 1960s was long ago, and we have to stop relying on this history as proof that we take racism seriously. I thought I took it seriously until December happened. Many of you likely remember the meeting of the Fourth Ward in Montclair when an invited official stood up and in one speech hit on many of the classic anti-Semitic tropes and dog whistles that we have come to fear in this era. I don't want to get into detail about this saga in part because that is not what this sermon is about. But also because we've since met with that individual and we've reconciled with him, we've engaged in dialogue, we've educated him about anti-Semitism, and we've accepted his apology. What I do want to talk about is another meeting that came out of this crisis. Knowing that the individual who spoke at the meeting was black and that it happened on the same week as the attacks at Chabad in Muncie, which culminated a week of racial tensions in Brooklyn between the wider African-American community and Jewish community. The mayor called African-American leaders and Jewish leaders from Greater Montclair to dialogue. It was in part an effort to quell any notion that these tensions exist here, and I joined enthusiastically. And though we worked to educate our fellow clergy about the subtleties of anti-Semitism, I quickly found that I had even more to learn about racism. The first thing that was clear from walking into that room was that I was walking into a sea of strangers. In the year and a half that I had been living here as your rabbi, I had come to know many of the white Christian clergy well in town. But other than a few acquaintances, this group of African-American clergy were strangers to me. We had no history and no trust. We lacked a relationship that would help us have the really hard conversations. Much of this stems from the fact, and you may not realize it, that there is an interfaith clergy association and a separate African-American clergy Christian association that meets independently in Montclair. Over the course of our meeting, I realized that if we expected this group of clergy to show up for the Jewish community in times of crisis, we needed to do the same for them. This is self-evident, but the reason we hadn't fought the racism inherent in our town with anywhere near the energy that we fight anti-Semitism is because we have grown used to seeing the palace on fire. We virtually ignore it. It disappears amidst other crises in our landscape. Racism, racism is a many-tentacled monster. That's what makes it so dangerous and so persistent. These leaders spoke passionately about how their congregations were being forced out by gentrification in Montclair and skyrocketing rents, how there was a glut of affordable housing 
They bemoan the fact that in the predominantly black Fourth Ward neighborhood, we find a food desert. And that some in Montclair care more about the preservation of some historic building than ensuring that their parishioners have access to easy food. They spoke about run-ins that their loved ones had with police and how the town seemed to give lip service to the achievement gap in school and did not take meaningful steps to correct it. Eventually, we chose to work on housing together as much to move the ball forward on the issue as to begin to find a relationship in one another, a relationship that you can only gain when you are working together in the trenches. More than anything else, these conversations showed just how far we have to go. Once you realize that the palace is burning, you must not ignore it. Our job is to figure out how to be part of the solution. Tonight, I want to propose three directions that our community must take to make meaningful change. The first thing that we need to do is educate ourselves on the myriad of ways that racism manifests in our society. After George Floyd, many thought leaders put together a list of books, documentaries, and movies that touch on race. Whether you've read them or not, you cannot ignore their impact. If we were here in person, I would have had you raise your hand if you read, for example, or seen Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, or spent time wrestling with How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, or screened the award-winning documentary 13th. If you haven't, you should. And if you have, you should find people to talk to about these things. We will work here at the synagogue to provide avenues for you to do just that. But one's education should also be diverse. Don't just read about racism. If you only focus on the negatives of a culture, it paints them as the victims. Instead, to understand the black experience, see the sublime creations. Read Toni Morrison or Langston Hughes. Watch films by Jordan Peele or Steve McQueen. Empathy and understanding are the fuel behind any great allyship. If we are going to be a voice for change, standing against racism, we need to understand how it works, our role in it, and what must be done to deal with it. However, these books and movies, while an important first step, cannot be the end product. Our ancient rabbis teach us that learning should always lead to action. Yet finding the right action isn't always easy. There is no question that broad-based coalitions effect change better than singular groups do. And as a Jewish community, we are poised to be allies in those partnerships. I'm going to say something that Jews don't allow ourselves to say enough. We are privileged that over our time here in America, the Jewish community has found a voice that the rest of society will listen to. We should celebrate that, but also use it. As hard as it was to hear, there were truths that were made after that crisis in December. That when one spoke ill of the Jewish community at one meeting, we immediately got calls from our mayor and our congresswoman. And when one swastika 
was drawn in the high school when countless racism happens as well. It was covered by multiple newspapers. I will never apologize for using my status to speak out for my people, the Jewish people. But woe are we if we stop there and we do not raise our voice to amplify the needs of our neighbors. Our job is to listen to people of color and through their stories to better see the injustices around us. And when we do, it will become clear what needs our attention. In my conversation with folks doing this work, here are a few places we can start. We can look at our schools and we can ask, is there enough diversity in the staff that is teaching our children? Are there many types of voices on our respective school boards? Are black and brown children graduating at the same rates as their white counterparts? We can look at our police department budgets and we can ask, are officers being sent out on calls that would be better done by trained social workers or drug counselors? Are black or brown people stopped for traffic violations at the same rate as their white counterparts? We can look at housing and ask, how do we ensure that we close loopholes that landlords use to avoid building low-income housing in their units? How do we keep a middle-class family who has lived in an apartment for 30 years from enduring rent 30 to 40% increase year over year? Some of this happens here, some of it doesn't, but we should keep asking these questions. There are people working on these issues. And our job isn't to tackle them alone, but rather to add our voice to the chorus calling out for change. And that's where our community comes in. Through educating ourselves and building relationships, we can have a sense of where our voice might best be used. A number of months ago, our community was integral in passing driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. As luck would have it, one of the deciding votes in our state Senate was our own Nia Gill, and our pressure helped ensure that she would vote for this bill. But we didn't come to the issue of driver's licenses in a vacuum. We listened to immigrants' rights groups who taught us why, among all the issues that needed their attention, they cared about driver's licenses. Then we paid attention to where our voice could help. Rather than support a bill that was going nowhere, we saw an issue that had legs and we went after it. The same must be true about our racial justice work. Not every moment is ripe for leading. We have to listen to our partners on the ground who have been doing this work for decades. But as important as education and advocacy work are, perhaps the most important thing that we can do as a community is to get our own Ne'er Tamid house in order. Our third task of our community, along with education and action, is to make our community more welcoming, more open, and more embracing of Jews of color. Recent studies have shown that nearly one in eight Jews are Jews of color. Yet consistently in report after report, study after study, article after article, these Jews report feeling othered in the Jewish community. Writing about this phenomenon, April Baskin, a well-known author and advocate for inclusion in the reform movement, spoke about a conversation she had with a peer about a painful memory he had walking into a synagogue. 
She writes, a young biracial Jew once shared with me the negative experience of people questioning other people's identity. If there are five Jewish people in a room, all of them white except for one person who's black, inevitably one of the white people will ask the black person, so how are you Jewish? These behaviors are ingrained. And though we may understand racism on a large scale, we often forget about the subtle acts that each of us per perpetrate when we are feeling comfortable, like in the familiar walls of our community. This past December, at the Biennial Conference of the Reform Movement, Mara Gad was invited to present on her book, The Color of Love, a story of a mixed-race Jewish girl. One would think that this conference would be a safe place for her because it had thought to include her book in the rich tapestry of program. Unfortunately, the conference modeled exactly the opposite of what it intended. She was first denied her credentials as a presenter and told, quote, the real Mara Gad would need to come get them. Then people mistook her for staff, even though her credentials said presenter, and they asked her to help turn over a room. We may not have seen overt behavior like this at TNT, but I promise it is likely to happen one day if it has not already. And even if we've avoided scenes like this, even our best intentions can be hurtful. A simple game of Jewish geography seems like a nice way to connect to someone new, but it actually quickly reveals who is in and who is out, who was born Jewish and who converted, who could afford to attend a Jewish summer camp, and who could not. We need to take time. And in doing so, we need to ask ourselves hard truths about race in the world, and at the same time, ask ourselves how we behave within these walls. That's why I want to challenge every single one of us to get involved. We have begun a racial justice task force at our congregation, and we are looking for volunteers to raise their hand. And as outlined, it's going to have three mandates, education, action, and looking really hard at how, we, at how we make our community the most open and embracing of Jews of color. Will you join me in this effort? But whether you do this work with us or not, the key is to remember that we can never become complacent. There is too much work to do. Thankfully, our eyes are open at the burning palace before us. And like Abraham, we ask, who owns this palace? The answer is simple. We do. And we can only put out this fire together. Erev Tov.